Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. It also contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was just before 1 a.m. when the 17-year-old girl stepped off a Toronto transit bus. With two days left before Christmas, she had spent the evening doing some last-minute gift shopping and visiting with friends. After the bus pulled away, the teenager turned down a sleepy side street lined with houses built in the 1950s as part of a residential development called the Avenue of Homes. The street was mostly dark, except for a few Christmas lights that twinkled as she headed home unaware of the stranger who watched from his hiding spot. Without warning, a hand grabbed the girl from behind and dragged her from the safety of the sidewalk into a dark backyard where she was brutally beaten and sexually assaulted. A shining knife held in the hand of the attacker stopped the teen from screaming for help. The vicious attack was the fourth of 30 such incidents that terrorized the greater Toronto area between 1987 and 1990, damaging the psyche of an entire generation of young women who feared the shadowy figure known at first as the Scarborough Rapist and later as half of a husband and wife team who kidnapped and killed two teenage girls. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s a podcast about a decade that changed the world. Over the next two episodes, we're looking back at the infamous crimes and trial of Paul Bernardo. If you Google the most notorious killer in Canadian history, Paul Bernardo's name will appear at the top of nearly every list. There have been other killers who have taken more lives and eluded police over a longer period of time, But the case of Paul Bernardo has left a deep and painful scar. It captured media and public attention in the mid-90s at a time when the United States was focused on the O.J. Simpson case in a similar way. But Bernardo's trial wasn't televised, so hundreds of people lined up to get inside the downtown Toronto courtroom to witness Canada's version of the O.J. trial. Others poured over the media coverage that blanketed newspapers or paid close attention to TV and radio stations, which provided hourly updates of the proceedings. As a radio reporter, I was inside the courtroom every day for four months in the summer of 1995. And the experience was a defining moment for me, not just professionally, but personally as well. The case has stayed with me to this day. And it's what inspired me to start a podcast in the first place. If you were a listener of my first show, The History of 1995, you may remember that I started off by recounting Bernardo's trial in a multi-part series. Now, with many new listeners from Canada and beyond, I'm revisiting the case and the long-lasting impacts it has had on Canadian society. And a warning, this is a difficult story to tell and to listen to and it may not be suitable for young or sensitive listeners. Toronto in the 1980s was home to 3 million people, a vibrant city with a world-class public transportation system, majestic tourist attractions like the CN Tower, and an array of multi-ethnic neighbourhoods offering more than 5,000 diverse restaurants. 
A Washington Post article about Toronto in 1988 noted residents of Canada's largest city are friendly and unhurried. And it stated, U.S. visitors to Toronto will marvel at the absence of slums and the safety of the city's streets. Despite this glowing review by the Washington Post, the streets in Toronto and its surrounding suburbs weren't always safe, especially for women. A record 1,400 sexual assaults were reported to Metro Toronto Police in 1987, up 10% from the year before. That's almost four assaults per day, ranging from inappropriate touching to violent attacks. But it's important to note who was committing these assaults. Between 1985 and 1987, 48% of sexual assaults reported to Metro Toronto Police were committed by strangers to the victim. Today, the vast majority of sexual assaults are committed by acquaintances to the victim. Just 20% are committed by strangers. During that time, there were several serial rapists terrorizing women in Toronto and surrounding communities. There was the High Park Rapist, the Balcony Rapist, the Highway 10 Rapist, the West End Rapist, the Donut Shop Rapist, and of course, the Scarborough Rapist, who targeted young women in the East End Toronto suburb. During this reign of terror, Metro Toronto Police didn't even have a dedicated sexual assault squad. So the onus was often put on women to protect themselves. They were told, don't walk alone at night, and if they have to venture out, plan a route carefully and be alert. The first two attacks by the Scarborough Rapist occurred in May 1987, within a few blocks of each other in the quiet, older residential neighborhood of Guildwood Village. In both cases, the victims were grabbed after getting off a city bus just past midnight. The attacker was armed with a knife, and in the second assault, the young woman was dragged at knife point into a backyard and terrorized for over 20 minutes. Her screams were either not heard or ignored by neighbors. She was eventually left tied to a fence with her own belt. The third attack occurred seven months later. Like in the previous incidents, a 15-year-old victim was grabbed after she got off a bus and was dragged between two homes and brutally assaulted. A week later, a fourth attack, where a 17-year-old was repeatedly assaulted for over an hour. Her attacker took his time, unafraid of getting caught, even though they were in someone's backyard. In all of these instances, the attacker went to great lengths to make sure his victims didn't see his face. So the young women were only able to give police the most basic of descriptions. White male, 5'8 to 5'11, with light brown curly hair and a medium build. Following the fourth attack, residents in the area began to take action, distributing 6,000 flyers inviting people to attend a community meeting. 650 people filled the auditorium of a local school beyond capacity. They called for more payphones to be installed in isolated areas and near bus stops. And they asked the Toronto Transit Commission to instruct bus drivers to drop off women closer to their homes late at night. A Guildwood Women's Action Committee was established and began safety audits in the neighborhood. It encouraged people to leave their outside lights on all night. Police once again advised women not to travel alone on foot at night in the area where the attacks had occurred. And if they must be out late, they recommended they walk in the middle of the road. When the next attack occurred in April 1988, the fifth in less than a year, 
police had no choice but to acknowledge that there was a serial rapist at work in the area. They called the case one of the worst they had seen and described the attacker as a brazen animal. They noted that each assault was getting more violent. It was escalating. In the latest, the 19-year-old woman suffered a broken collarbone when the attacker stomped on her arm. As I mentioned, Toronto Police didn't yet have a dedicated sexual assault squad, which outraged women's groups. They pointed out that Toronto Police had a hold-up squad and a car theft squad, but nothing to investigate the growing number of attacks on women. In response, police set up a special task force to investigate. They patrolled the quiet residential streets with the help of auxiliary officers, handing out flyers with the attacker's description. With the heat on in Scarborough, the rapists temporarily changed locations and began terrorizing another community on the opposite side of Toronto, in Mississauga, about 45 kilometers away. On May 30th, 1988, an 18-year-old woman was stalked on a main road and dragged at knife point into some bushes where she was savagely assaulted for over 20 minutes. Somehow during the traumatic experience, she did manage to note a few more details about the serial rapist. She gave police a refined description. He was between 17 and 20 years old, slim, muscular build, with wavy blonde hair and blue eyes. A reward of $50,000 was posted by Toronto Police, and at the time, it was the highest reward ever offered for a sexual assault in the city. The first time the media used the term Scarborough Rapist appears to be October 1988, the day after a 21-year-old woman was grabbed from behind after getting off a bus at around 2 a.m. Again, she was dragged into some bushes and the attacker started trying to tear off her clothes. She fought back and was stabbed twice, but managed to push his hand off her mouth long enough to scream for help, causing the attacker to run away. The next month, an 18-year-old woman wasn't so lucky. Walking home late at night from her job at a restaurant, the woman was grabbed from behind and dragged into a backyard where she was viciously beaten and sexually assaulted. Unbelievably, people inside the home were unaware that this horrible crime was taking place. After six assaults in Scarborough that they knew of and a seventh in Mississauga, police finally began to step up their investigation. 32 detectives were assigned to the case, and Toronto police reached out to the FBI to work up a profile on the rapist. Metropolitan Toronto police are intensifying their hunt for the man dubbed the Scarborough Rapist, Late Wednesday night, the man attacked what appears to have become his sixth victim in this quiet neighborhood. The young woman was grabbed from behind by a man armed with a knife and sexually assaulted in the backyard of a neighborhood home. We're doing the best we can. Hopefully, hopefully, something will turn up. This man is somebody's neighbor. Uh, He lives beside somebody. Somebody has an idea who he is. Uh, Somebody has a suspicion. And we're hoping we're going to get more information. Police have been tracking the movement of this serial rapist since his first attacks in May of last year. Ever since then, the man has targeted young women walking alone at night at various locations throughout Scarborough. Toronto police began receiving hundreds of phone calls with tips and leads which were inputted by officers into a new computer program the force was trying out. It was developed by Scotland Yard in the UK after the conviction of serial killer Peter Sutcliffe, better known as the Yorkshire Ripper. 
Police also set up a series of public meetings to advise women how to protect themselves. Police Constable Diane McInnes told nearly a thousand terrified women that the most important thing was to not act like a victim. She told the crowd at two separate meetings to walk with confidence, with head held high. And if someone is following, turn around and demand they tell you what they're doing. McInnes said, if you are attacked, use any means necessary to fight back. Scream, kick, punch, headbutt, gouge the eyes, go for the groin. Even stick a finger down your throat to make yourself vomit on your attacker. But again, all of this was putting the onus on women. Taxis were a bit of a luxury, so if you needed to get somewhere late at night and you didn't have a car, you would either have to walk or take the bus. And more and more, that felt like a dangerous thing to do. Community activists wanted more concrete steps taken, things like alarm buttons and better lighting in bus shelters. Finally, in April 1989, following at least one more attack and a couple of failed attempts by the Scarborough rapist, Toronto police set up the city's first sexual assault squad. Staff Inspector Tom Wolfe was put in charge of the new squad, and he told the media that the man they were looking for was more likely to strike after a confrontation involving women in his life. Wolfe called him a retaliatory rapist, one who attacks women so he can be in control. Despite the increased police attention, the attacks continued in the summer of 1989. Approximately uh, 1 o'clock, August 15th, a female was walking in the area of Ellesmere Road and McCowan Road. It was attacked from behind by a male, taken from the sidewalk to the side of a building, a residence, and sexually assaulted, viciously sexually assaulted. The investigators uh, believe it is the same man that's been responsible for at least six other attacks in the Scarborough area over the last two years. In December 1989, two years after the first attack, Toronto police and city councillors launched a poster campaign warning women about the Scarborough rapist and appealing for help to find him. Posters and signs were plastered all around the city on garbage trucks and buses. In the midst of all of this, he struck again. This time, a 19-year-old woman was grabbed after getting out of her car in an underground garage at around 3 a.m. on December 23, 1989. She was dragged to a stairwell and violated. Then, an 11th assault five months later in May 1990. Only this time, the attacker made a mistake. In the early morning hours of May 26, 1990, a terrified 19-year-old woman ran into a Scarborough street, waving down a passing car for help. The woman had gotten off a bus around 1.30 a.m. and was walking home alone when a good-looking young man appeared beside her, almost out of nowhere. He fell into step with her, making friendly conversation. The chat gave her just enough time to note his baby blue nylon jacket, tan pleated walking shorts, running shoes with no socks, and the details of his face. Before he dragged her away at knife point, she memorized his blue eyes and his feathered, honey-blonde hair. Later, when she sat with a police artist and described the man who tied her up and assaulted her behind a deserted high school, the sketch bore an unmistakable resemblance to a 25-year-old Scarborough resident, a young man by the name of Paul Bernardo. 
When the police sketch of a blonde boy next door was shared by the media, a number of people called police and provided the name Paul Bernardo as a possible match. But for detectives on the case, he was one of thousands of names that flooded in after the first detailed composite drawing of the Scarborough rapist was released to the public. Officers working at a huge table covered in telephones, tape recorders, coffee cups, and overflowing ashtrays took over 2,500 calls a day. And many were from cranks, who said things like the Scarborough rapist was orbiting above their home in a spaceship, or he had come to them in a vision. In addition, police received more than a dozen fake confessions from what one officer called sad, deranged men who were moved to confess to rapes they didn't commit. Sergeant Pat Tallon told the media it's something they always get for every kind of crime. So it took about two months before police were able to follow up on the tips they had received about Paul Bernardo. On November 20th, 1990, officers visited Bernardo at his parents' home in Scarborough, where he was interviewed. He was asked to provide a DNA sample and fully cooperated, providing blood, saliva, and hair samples. But because of a massive backlog at Ontario's newly created DNA lab, Bernardo's sample essentially went into a black hole with samples from over 100 other suspects in the rapes, sitting on a shelf in a lab for nearly three years before finally being analyzed. Following the release of the detailed composite sketch, the rapes in Scarborough completely stopped. As each month passed without another attack, residents felt a little safer. The memories of the terrible three-year period began to fade as posters warning women of the dangers of the Scarborough rapist were taken down. And Metro Toronto Police began to wind down their investigation, putting the case on the back burner as other more recent crimes competed for their attention. But investigators failed to recognize something critically important. Serial predators like the one in Scarborough are usually mobile, and they'll eventually graduate from rapist to murderer. The Scarborough rapist may have left the greater Toronto area, but it was only a matter of time before he struck again. On June 14, 1991, hundreds of people attended visitation services for a 15-year-old boy described as thoughtful, funny, and good-looking at a funeral home in Burlington, Ontario a city about 60 kilometers west of Toronto. A stream of shocked friends and schoolmates paid their respects to Chris Evans, who was among four teens killed earlier in the week following a fiery car crash on a rural road on the outskirts of Burlington. One of those attending the service that night was 14-year-old grade 9 student Leslie Mahaffey, who came to the funeral home with her mom. Leslie, a pretty teen with long blonde hair and braces, was known to her many friends as fun and friendly. She loved animals and dreamed of being a marine biologist. Leslie knew Chris from school, and like other teens attending that night, was struggling to process the shocking loss of her friend and the other boys who died in the crash. Following the service, Mrs. Mahaffey headed home, and Leslie gathered with some friends at a spot that local kids called The Rock, a place to go when they skip school or just hang out. It was a warm Friday night, and as the sun went down, 50 to 100 kids gathered for what became an impromptu memorial. There was a bit of beer drinking, lots of hugging, and a few tears. 
Leslie's still in her clothes from the visitation service, a white silk blouse and light brown shorts, circulated in the crowd, doing her best to cheer people up, offering hugs and kind words to anyone she noticed looking sad, including 15-year-old Martin McSweeney, best friend of Chris Evans. The gathering broke up around 12.30 a.m. McSweeney and Leslie began walking home together. Leslie was already well past her 11 p.m. curfew, but the pair took their time. McSweeney confided in Leslie that he was extremely nervous about Chris Evans' funeral the next day, where he would serve as a pallbearer. As McSweeney and Leslie passed a ravine, they decided to stop, sitting on the side of a hill, sharing a cigarette and talking, Leslie doing her best to reassure her friend. When they finally made it to Leslie's house on a quiet residential court, the lights were out, and when they went around to the side door, it was locked. The two returned to the front of the house. Leslie told McSweeney not to worry. She would figure something out and convinced him to head home. Before leaving, he made plans to pick up Leslie later that day for the funeral. As he walked away, McSweeney looked back and saw Leslie standing on her driveway in front of the garage. It was 1.50 a.m. As I said, Leslie was way past curfew. She was hoping to slip in the side door unnoticed, but the door was locked. So after McSweeney left, she walked to a nearby convenience store that had a phone booth and called her best friend Amanda. In an anxious-sounding voice, Leslie explained she had missed curfew and was locked out. She didn't want to ring the doorbell and wake up her parents, so she asked if maybe she could come and sleep over at Amanda's house. Amanda hesitated. She knew her mom would never go for it. She told Leslie it was probably not a good idea. The two friends stayed on the phone for about a half hour, and in the end, Leslie decided to head back home. Little did she know that a predator happened to be cruising around the neighborhood that night looking for a victim. He found Leslie standing outside her house alone in the dark. Leslie Mahaffey, firstborn beautiful baby to Dan and Debbie, big sister to Ryan, best friend to Amanda, was taken that night to a little house 60 kilometers away where she was viciously beaten and sexually assaulted for 24 hours before her young life was extinguished. Initially, there was little mention of her disappearance. Police told the media that Leslie might have run away. They said she had run away several times before and that she had probably done so again after being despondent over the death of Chris Evans and the other teens in the fiery car crash. But as each day passed, Leslie's family and friends grew more and more frantic. Then 14 days later, on June 29, 1991, 65 kilometers from Leslie's home, a man by the name of Bill Greckel was putting a canoe into Lake Gibson in Thorold, Ontario, when he spotted something in the shallow water close to the murky shoreline. He thought it looked like a patio slab on top of something and went over to investigate. When he moved the top slab of concrete, Greckel made a gruesome discovery. He couldn't believe his eyes and called over two nearby fishermen. Together, the three men found several other concrete blocks. Each had disintegrated in places, allowing the men to see what was inside. Like the first block Greckel uncovered, they all contained human remains. Ten days later, police announced that tests confirmed the remains belonged to 14-year-old Leslie Aaron Mahaffey. 
Leslie Mahaffey's coffin was carried into the Knox Presbyterian Church in Burlington, the same church where she was baptized 14 years ago. Hundreds of family members, friends, and schoolmates gathered for Leslie's funeral. They came to comfort each other and to remember. She was very well liked in our school, um, had lots of friends. She was into uh, like love and peace. There is little comfort for Leslie's parents and seven-year-old brother Ryan. The murder has brought shock and fear to the community. Many teens say their parents are nervous. They won't let me walk anywhere again because they're... They won't let me walk around or do anything unless they drive me somewhere, so... I guess it's for the better, though. The anxiety will continue until Leslie's killer is caught. Sue Scambati, Global News, Burlington. Just over 10 months later, on April 16, 1992, Donna French received a call at work around 3.40 p.m. from her husband, Doug, who said their 15-year-old daughter, Kristen, had not come home from school. The pretty honor student with long, dark hair had lots of friends and had a busy schedule with lots of extracurriculars. But when Mrs. French dropped off Kristen that morning at Holy Cross Secondary School in St. Catharines, Ontario, she had not mentioned any plans. At 4.50, when there was still no sign of Kristen, Mrs. French knew that something was wrong. She called her daughter's friends, her school, her rowing club. No one had seen her. At 5.50 p.m., Mrs. French called the police. The next day, a girl's shoe was found in the parking lot of a church near Kristen's school. When presented to Donna and Doug French, they immediately recognized the burgundy bass leather loafer with an orthotic insert as belonging to their daughter. And their worry increased even more. Police roped off the church parking lot, where they also found a piece of a paper map and a hairbrush. Then a woman who had seen the story on the news came forward to say she had witnessed an odd scene when driving by the church parking lot the day before. At the time, she thought it was teenagers goofing around, but now she feared she may have actually witnessed the moment Kristen was being abducted. Barbara Joan Packham was driving to meet her daughter at a nail salon when she saw a parked car in the parking lot of the Grace Lutheran Church. The passenger side door was open, and a tall, slim person was leaning into the car and was struggling to get something or someone into the vehicle. The person was backing up and going forward. It was just a matter of seconds, but it was long enough to catch Packham's eye as she drove past. She thought it was unusual, however, decided it must have been teenagers fooling around and carried on to her appointment. Packham told police the car was a cream-colored two-door sports car, similar to a Camaro. For the next several days, as dozens of police officers and hundreds of volunteers gathered to search for Kristen, the story permeated the news across the entire province of Ontario. Unlike Leslie's disappearance, when police assumed they were dealing with a teenage runaway, this time investigators had the evidence of a lost shoe and an eyewitness account of a struggle in a car. Kristen's father, Doug French, made a desperate and emotional appeal on television. Kristen, if you are here, read this. You want to know that we are thinking of you and that everything can be done is being done. And we'll get you back real quick. Statistics show that abducted children who are killed are ultimately murdered within three hours. 
So when appeals like this are made by terrified parents, they usually fall on deaf ears. But this time, the intended target actually heard the message. Kristen was still alive, being held captive in the same small house where Leslie died less than a year earlier. Kristen watched and listened to her father on TV, sobbing when she heard his voice telling her they would get her back. Tragically, that never happened. Twelve days later, Kristen's naked body was discovered in a ditch not far from a cemetery where Leslie was buried in Burlington. The proximity couldn't be ignored. Leslie's body was exhumed, and further tests concluded that she and Kristen were likely murdered by the same person. Police began talking about a serial killer, and a special task force was assembled to stop him from striking again. The Green Ribbon Task Force was headed up by the soft-spoken Niagara Police Inspector Vince Bevan. I'm very optimistic that this is a solvable case, and uh, we have a, a good deal of evidence that's been strung together. I think the important thing for us is getting that one call that someone may think is totally insignificant, but that one call may allow us to bridge all the information that we have together, and uh, that's the only way we're going to successfully conclude this investigation. Residents in the 50-kilometer area that stretched around Lake Ontario from St. Catharines to Burlington lived in fear that another young girl would be snatched off the street and murdered. By now, the story was inescapable in the greater Toronto area and beyond. Everyone was on the lookout for a cream-colored Camaro described in Kristen's abduction. With nothing else to go on, police focused on this car, displaying it on billboards and interviewing the owners of hundreds of vehicles that matched the description. Police also worked with a local TV station to air a reenactment of Kristen's abduction, hoping to generate some leads in the case. But months passed and police had no suspect. In fact, they had nothing solid to go on. Meanwhile, back in Toronto, the Centre for Forensic Sciences finally tested the remaining DNA samples taken three years earlier from suspects in the Scarborough Rapist case. And incredibly, they had a positive match. Six years after a vicious predator started attacking young women on the streets of Scarborough, Metro Toronto Police had what they needed to make an arrest. Investigators discovered their suspect lived in a cute, rented clapboard house in Port Dalhousie, a small lakeside town in the Niagara area. His name was Paul Bernardo, and until recently, he lived in the house with his wife, Carla Homolka. Following the DNA revelation, Toronto police began preparing to arrest Paul Bernardo in connection with the Scarborough Rapist case. Investigators wanted to make sure they had all their ducks in a row before arresting Bernardo so that when charges were laid, they wouldn't be jeopardized by any missteps. Making sure that every T was crossed and every I dotted was critical. Preparing search warrants and planning the arrest and post-arrest interview strategy takes a bit of time, and police didn't want to give Bernardo the chance to commit any further crimes, so they put him under surveillance, tapping his phone and tracking his every move. During that time, teams of officers assigned to keep Bernardo under 24-hour surveillance observed him cruising around at night in his car, stalking young women who were waiting for buses or walking alone. Early one morning, police were almost forced to blow their cover when Bernardo brought home a young woman. 
Worried that the woman would become Bernardo's next victim, they began to prepare an emergency arrest, but called it off when she safely left the home a short time later. Toronto police were slow to inform Niagara police about what they were doing, but meetings were eventually held to tell them that plans were being developed to arrest a suspected violent rapist who was living in their community. Immediately, Niagara police wondered if the Scarborough rape suspect could also be a suspect in the killings of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. What followed was a power struggle between the two forces, with both sides wanting to take charge. But Toronto police were in a better position. They had solid DNA evidence that Bernardo was the Scarborough rapist. Niagara police and the Green Ribbon Task Force only suspected Bernardo might be the killer of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. They had no evidence, nothing to prove this theory. But that was about to change. Before we go any further, I want to take you back to October 1987, a few months after the first rapes occurred in Scarborough. That's when 23-year-old Paul Bernardo met his future wife, Carla Homolka, during a chance encounter. Bernardo was hanging out with a friend in a 24-hour restaurant in the lobby of a Scarborough hotel. It was late at night, so when 17-year-old Carla Homolka walked in with a friend, Bernardo noticed her right away. They sat together chatting for a bit and then went up to the girls' room to watch a movie. For the next few years, Bernardo and Homolka were inseparable. He regularly commuted back and forth to visit Homolka, who lived with her mom, dad, and two sisters in St. Catharines. Eventually, the couple got engaged, and in 1990, Paul Bernardo left Scarborough and moved in with the Homolka family in St. Catharines. You'll remember, that's when the rapes in Scarborough stopped. Soon after Bernardo moved in with the Hamolka family, his fiancée's youngest sister, 14-year-old Tammy Hamolka, died after choking on her own vomit. Despite many unanswered questions at the time of her death, the coroner concluded that the incident was brought on by an asthma attack and ruled the death accidental. Not long after Tammy died, the couple moved out of the Hamolka family home and rented their own place, that cute pink house in nearby Port Dalhousie. They got a dog and, by all appearances, settled into their new lives, the epitome of domestic bliss. Bernardo, who had gone to the University of Toronto, had worked as an accountant for a short time at Price Waterhouse. And before moving to St. Catharines, he quit his job and began collecting unemployment insurance. And he also smuggled cigarettes across the Canada-U.S. border to earn extra money. On June 29, 1991, the couple were married in an elaborate wedding that took place at the Queen's Landing, a posh hotel in the quaint tourist town of Niagara-on-the-Lake. The newly married couple toasted champagne and rode through the small town in a horse-drawn carriage, just as Leslie Mahaffey's body parts were being discovered in Lake Gibson 30 minutes away. Ten months later, Kristen French's body would be found in Burlington, Ontario. The fairy tale looking marriage didn't last. Hamolka fled from her husband in January 1993 following a vicious assault. Bernardo beat Hamolka's head, thighs, back, and shoulders with a heavy duty flashlight. The impact of the beating on her head was so severe that it caused black and blue bruises to appear on her face, and her eyes were nearly swollen shut. A few days later, when Homolka returned to work, her face and neck were still bruised, and she had two massive black eyes, so she told everyone the injuries were caused by a car accident. Unbeknownst to Homolka, another employee at the vet clinic where she worked called her mom anonymously to say her daughter was in trouble and needed help. 
The next day, Mrs. Homolka paid a surprise visit to the vet clinic and was shocked to see her daughter's battered and bruised face. That night, Carla Homolka packed her things and left her husband. She moved in with an aunt and uncle in Brampton, Ontario. As this was happening, police identified Bernardo as a match in the Scarborough serial rapist case and as a possible suspect in the deaths of Leslie and Kristen. And they wanted to talk to his wife to see if she had any information. So police went to visit her in Brampton. As soon as Hamolka saw them, she knew it was only a matter of time before investigators would put the pieces together. She hired a prominent criminal defense lawyer, George Walker, and together they began working on a plan. In the meantime, Toronto police still had Bernardo under surveillance, and the debate was continuing between Toronto and the Green Ribbon Task Force about who should get to arrest him, whose case should take precedence, and how things should proceed. In the midst of all this, a media leak put everything in jeopardy. Several Toronto reporters got wind of an imminent arrest, including the name of the suspect, and police learned that one media organization intended to release the name. On February 17, 1993, investigators decided it was time to act. Police have 28-year-old Paul Bernardo in custody. They arrested him late yesterday at this house in St. Catharines that he rented with his wife. And police say there will be more charges laid. Uh, We are involved in an ongoing investigation. As most of you are well aware and are actively reporting, there are other people involved in this. So we've got a long way to go with our investigation. Global News spoke with Leslie Mahaffey's father just moments after he learned of the arrest. I feel a great sense of relief, but until we really know more about what's what's going on, I can't really say anything at this point. I don't really want to say anything at this time. Police are refusing to release other details of their investigation. They plan to search the house thoroughly for more evidence. Robin Smythe, Global News, Toronto. Bernardo was charged in connection with the Scarborough rapist case, and the media reported that he was also a suspect in the murder of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. But no charges related to the murders had yet been laid. News of the arrest was met with relief and shock. The first picture that appeared in the media was Bernardo's 1982 high school graduation picture. He had dark blonde feathered hair parted in the middle with a slightly stunned look on his face. Police described him as a well-dressed, well-groomed boy-next-door type who worked as a self-employed accountant. The description was not what one would expect when talking about a serial rapist and murderer who had terrorized a large swath of southern Ontario for the better part of six years. The news was shocking, to say the least. Photos taken outside Bernardo's Port de Luzi house showed a gold Nissan 240SX in the driveway, not a cream-colored Camaro. All this time, police had been searching for the wrong car. Once Bernardo was arrested, it seemed like each day brought another shocking revelation in the case. Bernardo's wife was identified as Carla Homolka. It was reported that she was in hiding as her lawyer was in talks with the Crown Attorney's office, attempting to negotiate immunity from prosecution in exchange for her assistance in the case against her husband. The couple's wedding pictures were splashed all over the media. In the photos, Bernardo's hair is dyed blonder. He's smiling widely at the camera, and his face is filled out from the teenager captured in the 10-year-old high school yearbook picture released the day before. 
By his side, Homolka is a pretty blonde bride in an elaborate wedding gown, a perfect-looking couple. Five days after Bernardo's arrest, Ontario's chief coroner ordered a new investigation into the death of Carla Homolka's younger sister, Tammy. As the days went on, Bernardo still wasn't charged in the murders of Leslie and Kristen. No one knew this at the time, but police simply didn't have the forensic evidence they needed to lay the charges. They hoped to find what they needed inside Bernardo's house. That's because Carla Homolka's lawyer had revealed that there were videotapes crucial to the case hidden somewhere inside the home she once shared with her husband. For 71 days, forensic investigators in sterile white suits literally tore the place apart, looking for the tapes and any other evidence that would tie Bernardo to the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. The basement steps were removed. Pieces of the basement floor were hacked away by a jackhammer. A toilet was pulled out and drywall was cut out in the kitchen. The home was virtually destroyed. But police did not find the videotapes mentioned by Hamulka's lawyer, the one thing they were so desperately looking for. Without the tapes, they needed Carla Hamulka more than ever to build a case for murder against Bernardo. In May 1993, the Crown signed off on an agreement with Hamulka that's been called a deal with the devil. She would testify against her husband in exchange for a 12-year sentence for manslaughter. A few days later, Paul Bernardo was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. But the videotapes did exist. Police had just missed them. Six days after police finished searching Bernardo's house, his lawyer at the time, Ken Murray, and other members of Bernardo's defense team entered the Port Dalhousie house. While inside, Murray got a call on his cell phone from Bernardo, who told him to retrieve six videotapes from behind a pot light in the home's upstairs bathroom. Murray hung on to the tapes for the next 16 months. In September 1994, Ken Murray quit the case and gave the tapes to Bernardo's new lawyer, John Rosen, who turned them over to police. What they found was graphic and disturbing. The tape showed Paul Bernardo and his wife, Carla Homolka, sexually assaulting Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, as well as Homolka's younger sister, Tammy. It was irrefutable evidence about the kidnapping and assaults, but the tapes did not show the murders. Coming up on the next episode of History of the 90s, Paul Bernardo pleads not guilty to murder, and blames his wife for the crimes at a trial that captured the nation's attention for four months in the summer of 1995. Thanks for listening to part one. Make sure you follow History of the 90s so you don't miss part two when it's released in a couple of weeks. If you haven't already, please take a minute to rate and review us. It helps other people find the show. And if you have a suggestion for a topic, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History and on Instagram and Facebook. Or you can send an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kanzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 